0: take a stand for the things of God, because then and when you take that stand, you will find His enabling, sustaining grace and His love. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Over the last few weeks, we have steadily been making our way through the New Testament book of Philippians, and today we are coming to Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me please to Philippians chapter 2 as we read verses uh, verses 12 to 18, and you'll find it on page 1827 of the church Bible, page 1827, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Most of you will be aware that the Apostle Paul is writing around the year AD 60. Paul has been arrested for his faith and is about to go on trial for his life. And he's writing to the church at Philippi to encourage and strengthen them in their faith. And we break into chapter 2 at verse 12. And he begins, "'Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence." But now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation." in which You shine like stars in the universe, as You hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering of sacrifice and service coming from Your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of You, so You too should be glad and rejoice with me." Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His holy Word. I want to start this morning uh, by asking for your help and participation. the choir, I'm going to be needing your help along with the musicians here, and what I'm needing you to do is to lift your right leg about six inches off the floor, if you would, choir, keep an eye on them for me and make sure they're doing it. And then move your ankle and foot in a clockward direction. Musicians, let me say, yeah, it's working so far. And while it's moving in a clockward direction, take your hand, write a figure six, and notice what happens to your foot. Okay, about 30% of you are getting there eventually, let's try it once more. Foot up, move it in a clockwise direction, and then try and write a figure six, and notice your foot will not continue in a clockwise direction, it goes all over the place. (laughs) And my point in all of that silliness is this, that we tend to think we can surely control movement of our hand and our foot. But in fact, it's not just as easy as that. And this morning, as we come back into Philippians and go deeper and deeper into chapter 2, what you will discover is this, that the Apostle Paul is making a plea, not so much for hand and foot to work together, but for head and heart to work together. And in the middle of the passage this morning, Paul is going to challenge us mentally and emotionally, to work out your salvation. And that's where we're going in our study this morning. Notice with me how he begins at verse 12. He writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But notice how he begins this section. He writes… Therefore, and you are educated enough to know that when it comes to biblical studies or studying a passage of literature at any level, whenever someone writes, therefore, you pause and stop and ask yourself, what is it therefore? And here is Paul saying that the first part of chapter 2 was so important but he wants you to take note. And if you were with us last Sunday, you will remember he talked at great length of what it means to have that vital, essential, supernatural relationship with Christ. And he called it union with Christ. If you weren't with us last Sunday morning or you weren't watching on television, if you go to the church website and you click on the media section of the church website, you'll find it all there. So, please do this week if you have time. And when he writes, therefore, what he's saying is this, that as the people of God, we do not simply gather on a Sunday morning for information and inspiration, helpful, essential, as all of that is, Paul goes on to say and challenged us last week and this week, that's when we take the biblical principles, we study on a Sunday morning, when we get them from our head to our heart, and we then apply them, that's what makes the difference. It's when you are active in your faith, it's when you are growing and maturing and are being obedient to the call of God in your life, that's when the strengthening and the enabling grace of God comes into play. I think most of us would agree that knowledge in and of itself is not enough. Knowing the diet of John the Baptist, the dimensions of Noah's Ark, the difference between Jerusalem and Jericho, interesting but won't affect our life. And so, what Paul is saying is this, take what you learn, then apply it to your life so that you may grow in grace. Work out your salvation. That's the point he's making right here. And notice what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling what is the word he uses? Obey. Now, most of us would say, yeah, Richard, I agree that in order to live an authentic, credible Christian life, we take biblical principles, we apply them to our lives because our walk must equal our talk. We cannot say one thing on Sunday and be something else on Monday. If we are really to live out the Christian life in the messiness and the daily challenges which come our way, we have to be credible and authentic. So we take the Scriptures and apply it to the messiness of everyday living. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, be obedient to the Word of God. Be obedient to the call of God in your life. And most of us would agree but I think if I got you on your own, very quietly we sat down and shared a cup of coffee, and I said to you, now, do you have any reservations about obedience in the Christian life? You may well say, well, Richard, if I'm being perfectly honest, obedience kind of comes across as stark, legalistical, mechanical, devoid of joy and blessing and the thrill of the Christian life, obedience is a kind of word out of tune with the noise of our culture and our day. And that may be true, but please understand this. As Christian people, we don't simply obey the Scriptures because we ought to, We obey the Scriptures because we know and love its author that's the point. That's what Paul is saying. Because of your union with Christ, because of His love for you, because of His transforming work in your life, because He calls you to apply it to the messiness of your daily living, and because of His enabling grace and strength, because you love Him, you will then quite naturally Obey Him. That's the point he's making. That's why the first part of the chapter talked about union with Christ, and it's out of that union with Christ we willingly, gladly surrender our lives and then obey Him. That's the point he's making when it comes to obedience. But in typical Pauline fashion… Once you think he's made this great, wonderful, spectacular appeal to live for Christ, he then takes you a step further and deeper. And notice what he does now. He writes, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, Richard… I've been following closely the last few Sunday mornings as we have worked our way through Philippians. And I get the point about the head and the heart. I get the point about applying biblical principles to the messiness of the Christian life. But did you not tell us three, four Sundays ago that one of the major emphases In this epistle was that of joy and rejoicing, of knowing a relationship with Christ, of knowing His blessing and His enabling and His sustaining, of knowing His grace that is overwhelming, so much so it's almost as if your heart is about to burst because you cannot contain His love and His joy. Did you not tell us that? And the answer, of course, is yes. Well, Richard explain why Paul is now saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I don't see much joy in there. I don't see the blessing of God. I don't see His encouraging grace. I hear fear and trembling. What is Paul saying here? Well, allow me to suggest this if I can. There are multiple passages across the Scripture that talk about the thrill of walking with Christ each day and of His love and His grace and His goodness. And I think we would say that is the case in our own experience as well. There is no substitute for knowing His hand upon you, His leading, His guiding, His directing. But I think we would also say this, that in Paul's experience, the experience of the folks at Philippi, and her own experience, and multiple generations over the last 2,000 years would also say this, that even though we are united with Him… Even though He lives within us, even though He's there to support and encourage and strengthen us in our faith, there are moments in our life when we sin and sin badly. And when the Apostle Paul says, work out your salvation in the messiness of everyday life, when your head and your heart is authentic and credible in applying biblical principles, also remember this, that there are moments when we sin and we recognize the power and the magnitude and the significance of temptation and sin. That's the point where we do not take Him for granted. That's the point when we do not simply treat Him with courtesy, that's the point when we realize that we are not quite the people that we ought to be, and we should be fearful about our own sin. We should live the Christian life in fear and trembling. Why? Because we recognize the power of sin. We recognize our own weakness, but we don't live out the Christian life fearful of what God will do to us, but fearful that we might hurt or disappoint or grieve Him because of our sin. And that's the point Paul is making. Live out your salvation. Apply it to the messiness of everyday life, but do so with fear and trembling, because you also recognize the weakness of your own ability And your own sin. That's the point he's making. But mercifully, he doesn't stop there either. He takes us a step further once again. And notice what else he says. He says, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault and a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. There are multiple passages we mentioned moments ago that talk about the love and the grace, the mercy of God, and the goodness of God, and how He inspires us and refreshes us and renews us and cleans us up and allows us to begin all over again. The Scripture is packed with passages like that. But the Scripture also describes sin in all of its darkness, describes sin as distasteful and ugly and utterly shocking. Now, let me make my point clear by using several illustrations. We mentioned this at the time. Back on the 2nd of July, if you were walking downtown Baghdad, a car bomb went off and 308 people lost their lives that morning in a senseless act of violence that achieved nothing other than misery and the slaughter of human beings, 308 people. What on earth was going through the mind of the people who conspired and planned and put that bomb there and carried it out? What was going through their minds? If you were in a nightclub in Orlando this past June. When Omar Mateen, aged 29, stood up, took out a weapon, murdered 49 people and injured another 53, stopped and reloaded so often that he went into his pocket, pulled out his cell phone, dialed 911 while he was still murdering people, and boasted about what he was doing on his cell phone. Talk about living in a depraved and crooked generation. This past Wednesday, just this past week, six-year-old Jacob Hall had an outstanding funeral that was entirely unnecessary when fourteen-year-old Jesse Osborne shot his own father, drove to a local elementary school, shot two six-year-olds and the teacher, and one of them was buried last Wednesday, as you know. What kind of country are we living in where it has become the norm for newscasts and media to cover gun violence in the workplace? People being shot in cinemas and shopping malls and playgrounds where children are suffering the horrors of child abuse and human trafficking and alcohol and drug addiction is decimating families. What kind of society have we become? And allow me please to see this, say this in the most gentle way I can. If you do not believe we live in a crooked and depraved culture, you need to wake up and look at what is going on around us. It's incredible, and it's awful, and we see it, as we've said, in human traffic and child abuse, domestic violence, and incestuous affairs, and it is utterly appalling. It is awful, awful. Let me challenge you. If you were to go home this lunchtime and sit down on your most comfortable seat in your living room with a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent and flip through the cable channels would you be embarrassed by what is on there? Open up your laptop and look at the wonders of the internet. Good night. Where is it going to stop? What Paul is calling his own folks at Philippi to do, and what the Scripture is calling us to do, is be men and women of grace, men and women who will work out their salvation in fear and trembling in the midst of a crooked and depraved world. Men and women who will say, enough is enough. We are done with this. Morals matter. Standards are important. And as Christian people across this nation, we are done with it. It is over. And as we get into this presidential election cycle, the best thing we can do is fall on our knees and pray, Father, grant us mercy, mercy for the state of this nation. Amen? Amen. We need to take a stance, we need to say we will no longer be marginalized and minimized, but we will be men and women who care, men and women of righteousness, men and women for whom character and honesty and integrity matter. We care about our nation, we care about the future, we care about generations yet unborn. And if you are willing to take that stance, please hear this, you will be attacked. You will sought to be marginalized and minimized and castigated and dismissed. John's gospel puts it this way, men love darkness and stayed away from the light. Six months ago, I shared with you two quotations that came from academics in the United Kingdom. And the first came from Dr. Stephen Hawkins, a renowned physicist. He said this, Religion is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And Professor John Lennox, who teaches mathematics and philosophy at Oxford University and is an equally renowned academic, said this, Atheism is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. Afraid of the light, that's what Paul is calling them to be. That's what the Scriptures call us to be. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was saying there is another way, a way of righteousness, of grace, a way of justice, a way of standing for what is right. Do not hide your light under a bushel, but let it shine out. Be salt and light in the culture, in the society. That's what He's calling us to. Work out your salvation in fear and in trembling and in the messiness of your everyday life. He is calling us to be Christian people. Christian people who will sign up and be committed to the PTA. Christian people who will sign up and be committed to the political process. Withdrawing and hiding and suggesting that we have a siege mentality will not answer anything. Be involved. Register to vote. Take a stance. Be committed to being involved in the law and education and health service and manufacturing and the financial sector. Make a difference. Be the people he has called us to be. Let's emancipate ourselves from the tranquilizing addiction of situational ethics and the moribund impotence of cultural appeasement. Take a stand for the things of God, because then and when you take that stand, you will find His enabling, sustaining grace, and His love. Be a people who care about our nation, who care about our future, and be a people whose dreams are greater than our memories. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. Help us this week to come back to it again and again, to live in it, to apply its principles to our lives. Enable us, please, to live for you and to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. And the people of God together said, Amen.
1: My name is Keith Gross, and I am Executive Director of Neighborhood Focus. Neighborhood Focus is a free, faith-based, out-of-school time program for under-resourced children and students here in Greenville. We accomplish our mission through uh, academic support and spiritual enrichment and life skills development for children ages K-5 through 12th grade. Our goal is to provide a foundation for future success. Neighborhood Focus offers the opportunity to get involved in real simple ways. You can come on a Friday nightclub, you can come spend your time during the school year and after school program also during the summer camps. Neighborhood Focus is a difference maker. They're a difference maker in the lives of young people. Well, I've been here since the program started, and what I love about it is we have an opportunity to pour ourselves into the kids and put God's word in it. Out of all the years I've been doing this, it's just been a blessing to be able to just see the kids grow, see the counselors grow, and just the fellowship and the friendships they build over the years that I've been here. I see the continuity and I also see the community. You have children who are sharing the good news of Christ and they're sharing it amongst themselves and and they're learning how to verbalize that and, and ways to do that to take it into their Christian walk and take it back hopefully to their community. While the kids would tell you that they love any opportunity, they have to get wet and get the counselors wet they have a great time. I would just always remember the love of the kids and how they're so much fun and they're so joyous and to watch them rush in and give us huge hugs. I made a lot of friends. We did a lot. We learned a lot of, lot more about God that I didn't know about. I've learned new things about God and uh, we've went to many field trips. We've had fun all summer. I like coming here because I can have fun, play games, and I can go to field trips and, play, and have new friends. My daughter, she's nine years old. She told me that this is one of the best decisions you have ever made. The Neighborhood Focus After School program requires significant volunteer support to execute properly. The three areas that we have a primary need for volunteers include help with our food program including picking up meals and distributing meals to the children in the early afternoon. Secondly, uh, help with monitoring homework and assistance with one-on-one tutoring. And lastly, we're always in need of individuals that enjoy coming out and spending time in recreation with the children. The most important goal for Neighborhood Focus is to take our kids on a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. It's because of the generosity of partners like First Presbyterian Church that we're able to do what we do. If you'd like to join us in our effort to make a difference to this next generation, please let us know. We'd enjoy the opportunity to have you join our team.